0: Welcome to this podcast and videocast. I'm Silky Carlo, the director of Big Brother Watch. Big Brother Watch is a UK civil liberties campaign group fighting for a free future. We're a fiercely independent, non-partisan and non-profit group who work to roll back the surveillance state, defend free speech and protect rights at a time of huge change. Our work relies on the generosity of people like you who care about civil liberties in the UK. If you can support us, please do visit bigbrotherwatch.org.uk forward slash donate to support this podcast and our work. I'm over the moon to be joined by Baroness Shami Chakrabarti, who needs little introduction, uh, but who many of you will know as um, a Labour peer as the former Shadow Attorney General, and, of course, as the Director of Liberty uh, for 12 or 13 years, I think, Shami. A very long time. And when I was thinking about all of the people um, that we should be speaking to about the current situation that we're in and who can we learn from most, Shami was the number one person that came to mind uh, for so many different reasons, but um, particularly because of... Um, your experience in um, campaigning and standing up for human rights in the most difficult circumstances uh, in the wake of 9-11 and um, maybe we can jump in um, right away there really in that in that uh, terribly difficult context it's always difficult to stand up for, for um, civil liberties and human rights, but never more difficult than than then. And, and perhaps now, if I recall correctly, and um, full disclosure, we we uh, worked briefly together. I, I, I was very lucky to work at Liberty for a time under Shami. Um, if I recall correctly, Shami, your first week of work was directly in the wake of the September the 11th attacks?
1: Um, Yes, that's right. Um, The um, 9-11 was, I think, my second day um, in a new job as uh, as a lawyer at Liberty. Um, And and prior to that, I'd actually worked um, on anti-terrorism measures in the Home Office. So I'd been a lawyer in the Home Office for about five and a half years before coming to Liberty. So that was a big culture shock in itself. Um, and and then to exacerbate that culture shock, as I say, on my second day at work, um, 9-11 happened. Um, I talk about it a little bit in my, in my first book. It was literally new, new environment having come from the home office from you know an interior department charged with um you know charged with interception warrants and extradition warrants and anti-terror legislation and immigration legislation all the rest of it to be on that side of the fence so to speak and then to come to liberty but then in that new environment very quickly and i literally had a day to think about the challenges of the new work Had been asked to uh, develop a litigation, a campaigning litigation strategy for liberty. So, one day of blue sky thinking, if you like, and then the next day there were blue skies no more. And it was very clear that our priorities were not going to be of our own choosing, they were going to be set by uh, governmental responses on both sides of the Atlantic in particular.
0: And your campaigning in those subsequent years led you to um, be called anything from the most dangerous woman in Britain to the most imp- inspiring political figure, um, which I think is a, an, uh, an apt reflection on how difficult and... Uh, divisive, oddly, yeah. um campaigning for human rights can be in,
1: in these times. I mean I think the less, I think you're so right, Silky. I think that the, the lesson if there is one to other human rights campaigners about either acclaim or derision is really, you know, I'm not the greatest fan of Kipling for all sorts of reasons to do with his politics, but I do think treat those two imposters just the same is a pretty good is a pretty good motto because, yeah, it, you know, you're derided, you're, you're praised, um, depending on um, who you're upsetting and who you're defending. And in my experience, whatever they say, everybody actually loves human rights. They love their own. It's just a little bit harder to stand up for other peoples, particularly people who you don't identify with or you see as the bad guys it's easy to stand up for you for your own rights those of your friends family people like you um that's the bit of liberty that everybody loves it's the it's the others the marginalized the the suspect the um the left behind uh, and we don't often enough identify with those people until we find ourselves on the wrong side of that border that fence that that wall that line Mm, that's so true and
0: the current terrible circumstances that we're in with this pandemic are really showing up lots of um you know on the one hand it's been called the great equalizer but really it's been anything but and it's really showing up a lot of the um the fissures that we have in society and the um, the, the different risks that people face. Uh, some people have even described there as being the kind of ingredients for class war. But what's without doubt is that um, there are um, certain people who are, are, are at more risk than others certainly people in care homes older people and then of course people who are still having to go out to work on front lines whether it's being collectors or NHS workers or uh, construction workers and 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 so on um, do you how, how do you read this um, yeah you know the, 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 the most important right being the right to life um, how do you read that challenge that we now have with protecting um, some of the most marginalised people
1: in the country? I think, I think you, you really nailed it. You know, the great equaliser comment is, you know, is something that really belongs in Madonna's bathroom. <laughs> and nowhere else. <laughs> uh, you know, I, with the greatest of respect to, you know, to, to the great entertainer, um, I think that has been proven to be false. Um, I understand where it's coming from. It's coming from the recognition that we are all human and there is an element of connection in that, particularly when we're talking about, um, you know, um, an infection, a pandemic, a crisis, not in the financial system, but literally in the respiratory system. And, of course, you are much more protected in the White House or in your penthouse than you are in the places that you've described on the front line in the care home um, you know in the shelter in uh, reliance on public services of whatever kind that have been that have been deprived of priority and investment for for a decade so of course it isn't an an equalizer the sentiment comes from a good one which is we're all human we need to take care of each other to take care of ourselves but the truth is that in any crisis stroke emergency stroke moment of of, of massive national and international um, struggle um, some suffer more than others and crucially to go back to the point about I love I love my liberty I love my free speech but yours is more expensive crucially it is incumbent on human rights campaigners I think to to level the playing field because otherwise some people are making all the decisions and other people are paying for them some people are literally prepared to sacrifice others for not just for their own benefit but for their own convenience so to give an example you know in the war on terror a lot of people were very happy to sacrifice the, uh, the liberties of a minority. So let's have racial profiling, people would say, at the, at the airport where those same people became a little bit more squeamish about a loss of liberty was when you saw it affecting them or affecting everybody. So people, for example, very happy with compulsory identity cards when it's just gonna be for, I don't know, uh, asylum seekers. But when it might be everybody, and suddenly people start weighing the costs and the benefits of the policy a little bit more carefully. Similarly, in a financial crisis, um, of course, bail out the banks and the very good, very good reasons for, for, for bailing out the banks, because the banking system is important to, to, to any society. But, you know, bail out the banks and then what about the people who've suffered as a result of of the banks and the bankers, a bit more reluctant to take care of, of, of the people lower down the um, the economic chain. And this time I'm hearing similar voices getting you, know, you might call them right wing libertarians who get very upset about not being able to, to take their, you know, to take their preferred holidays and drives to beauty spots and walk their, get their labradors out of their Land Rovers and all the rest of it, but not. Prepared to stick up for um, for uh, people um, working in care homes or people in care homes, you know. So even sort of, you know, really quite um, elderly retired judges, for example, banging on about the police state um, because of the need for lockdown and social distancing, but not suggesting there should be a symmetry. Um, a, a, an equalization to any sacrifices. And, and, and literally some of them talk about, well let you know let the old and the sick shield themselves so that the rest of us can go about our business as usual. Um, and I find that, as I say, reminiscent of the same attitude of othering, letting some people suffer most, some people sacrifice most that we, that we've seen in previous crises, emergencies and and even in wartime. I think I know who you're talking about um but of
0: course there is something about the um the
1: the
0: enormous wave of of emergency powers um that there now are and the lockdown restrictions that affects everyone in a way that policing and authority haven't affected um some of those groups and very privileged groups before as well um do you think that that will change people's Um, understanding, perception, experience of of policing and maybe even of uh, kind of grow people's consciousness of the
1: importance of their own and others' civil liberties? There's no doubt that this is the the point about equal treatment, both in terms of um, how you feel when you've had a bad experience, when you've previously led a very charmed or privileged life, Um, But also about the discipline that equal treatment as a principle will impose um, on people like the police and on the government. And that's why it is a very, very important human rights principle. You you said earlier, and I understand again where it's coming from, the most important right is the right to life. You know, I I see where that's coming from, but I'm not completely convinced that it is actually the most important right. Because if you think about it... um, the right to life doesn't grant us a right to live forever. Um, you need, you need, you know, you'd need, um, you can't have jurisprudence can't do that. You need something more something more spiritual or even magical to do that. I mean, the right to life is incredibly important, but um, it's not an absolute. So we take life in wartime or we take life. To save life when somebody's about to murder people etc cetera, etc cetera, and there is no other choice and um, you'll actually find that the right not to be subject to torture and human degrading treatment is more absolute but I think in terms of the key to the human rights kingdom the key to um to really building a society um that that, that respects everyone's human rights equal treatment is is in a way in non-discrimination or equal treatment is the most powerful dynamo, if you think about it, in the Belmarsh case, the judges didn't, um, the judges of the, um, it was then the the Lords Appellate Committee, it would now be the Supreme Court, didn't um, in majority choose to interfere with the government's decision about, you know, what was strictly necessary, you know, was it a public emergency? What they did was look at the differential and discriminatory treatment between different groups of suspects based on their nationality. And and the judges said, but this isn't rational. This is, you know, this is irrational discrimination and therefore it cannot be strictly necessary. And similarly, I think you're right. When people who have previously led a charmed life, as most of us, most of us, many of us have, certainly in comparison with other parts of the world, it's when we have that little taste of injustice or oppression or intrusion, that perhaps we think again, about the rights and freedoms of others. I can remember, for example, you know, um, conservative members of parliament who had their own little brushes with, with the police, um, then saying to me, I will never, I will never take civil liberties so lightly again, and I now identify with young black men on council estates who are getting stopped and searched on a, on a routine basis without suspicion. So out of, out of some oppressions, some, you know, some good things can come when people you know, learn um, what it's like to, um, to be on the, on the rough end of the stick. That's not, by the way, wanting people to experience in, in, injustice. But it's another reason why um, equal treatment is so important. Because if authorities or other people in power are allowed to divide and rule, including by you know sacrificing some people's liberties so that other people can enjoy them freely it, it does it does divide and rule and um and minorities get othered and it's you know and, and and in any event without even expressly discriminatory laws or enforcement lockdown is harder for people um who are poorer for people in crowded housing for people who you know, can't afford or can't get access to, to food deliveries for, for people who've got prior poor health and diets and so on and so forth. So you're starting with something that isn't really an equaliser, something that, that hurts some groups worse than others, which is why it's even more odious when some commentators write freely in the newspapers, speak openly on the BBC about, um, about the importance of, of, of just letting those people shut themselves away and and let other people live as before.
0: The lockdown restrictions, as you've just said, they have incredibly complex impact Mm -hmm. um, that needs to be debated and properly considered. Obviously, there's the time pressure of the urgency of the the situation that we're facing. Um, But there has been very little of that. And uh, so, for example, the. The, the, the lockdown regulations, uh, so to speak, um, the health protection regulations, um, were only considered by the House of Commons I think at least seven weeks after they were imposed by government. Um, and then I guess it was must have been in the eighth week that they got to the House of Lords for consideration. Now that you're on that side and you have the ability to work in, in Parliament, and yet, you, we've we've seen these these regulations um, being being made that have such profound impact. But but Parliament seems to have been kind of swerved in the um, scrutiny of them. Does that concern you?
1: Of course, it, it it's always very concerning. It was it was um, concerning when I was sitting where you are, and it's just as concerning, even more concerning now. And it is very frustrating to see sometimes the. Almost impotence of even a massive legislature um, when you get um, when you get emergency legislation of whatever kind, and of course regulations are are even less easy to scrutinise than primary legislation. Though even the primary legislation that was the um, the coronavirus bill now act um, was was put through so quickly um, um, and at a moment where you have a government with an 80 seat majority in the house of commons, um, where the second chamber lacks elected democratic legitimacy. And of course, where there is, um, a very real emergency, not a, not a, not a metaphorical war like the war on terror, but a very real emergency, um, um, as opposed to just a threat or you know a challenge or a very grave threat or challenge, it's a it's a global pandemic, and you've also got people who you've also got a parliament that can't sit in its in its usual ways because um, because it's sitting virtually or semi virtually, etc. Cetera, etc. But I would say that uh, regulations and the ability to scrutinize them are always um, a slightly uh, less than optimal um, mechanism. And I think that emergency legislation, even of the primary variety, is is passed too quickly. So the government sits on the problem for for some period of time, months or weeks, um, and then says, well, we must have this through in, in, in a matter of days. And then, subject to the size of its majority, and subject to the emergency and the public mood, um, it, it it sort of c- can do all of that. And again, my biggest concern about the legislation is that it's asymmetric. That on the one hand, it um, and I, you know, and I, I you know, I, I said this to, to to ministers and 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 in the media at the time. I can understand the justification for pretty much, you know, all the measures in that legislation, horrific though some of them are, really, the idea that I would ever support, you know, the banning of mass gatherings, which by definition includes peaceful protests against the lockdown itself the idea that i would ever support that and i did the idea that i would support the the possibility of people being sectioned under the mental health act by one doctor not two given the dangers there and 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 so on and so on you know the the reduction in rights for um for um for the for the for the chronically disabled and people in need of care plans and so on it's it's a, it represents a, a huge potential degradation of rights but in the kind of emergency where those things might be necessary. So, so you, you suck that up and you say, okay, this is a, a terrible, this is a global pandemic. We're, all, we've all, we're already, I think, nearly on um, a casualty figure that's about half the civilian casualties in the whole of World War II. Imagine that, 70,000 UK civilians perished in the whole of World War II. And now we're, what, in the early 30s just in a matter of months. So I accept all of that, but my concern is the asymmetry of the legislation because you've got all these sacrifices that individual citizens and people in the country have to make in relation to their rights for this period. But where were the powers to requisition factories to produce PPE? Where were the powers to ensure that health and safety was properly enforced? So lots of powers for the police to move you on when you're having your your ill-advised picnic or your trip to the beauty spot or whatever it happens to be. And you see those stories now. And, and sometimes I see Silky Carlo, you know, rightly quoted. And sometimes somebody less articulate and, and sympathetic is quoted. But you see those stories. But where are the stories of the health and safety executive going into an, un, um, an unsafe um warehouse or call center or construction site with with the police so um so, so this so individual rights powers are... Are big, sorry so it's asymmetric So I, I was going to ask. yeah
0: so do you think the emergency powers are more punitive than they are protective
1: i no. i think that they are designed to be protective but they but they're not but they're asymmetric, so it's sacrifice on behalf of the individual. And of course, that will mean in practice, the poorest individuals suffer the most because of the nature of, you know, having a garden, not having a garden, etc, etc, etc. But equally, where where are the parallel powers that we should have seen to, um, you know, to, to um, clamp down on unscrupulous employers? um um, and um ensure health and safety not just in the parks but on the building sites or um you know in unsafe places of work so so sacrifices on behalf of individuals and that will mean the poorest the most but not sacrifices on behalf of people who um who are making literally millions and billions out of um out of online retail um, and possibly forcing their employees to work in unsafe conditions. Mm. I think one of the
0: um, one of the disappointing things about the, the the lack of time that's been afforded to parliamentary debate around both the lockdown restrictions and, of course, the Coronavirus Act as well, um, which has massive sweeping powers. Um, mm-hmm in in so many areas that you name named named a few but it's 342 pages it's it's eye-watering stuff um is that precisely the kind of issues that you're raising now haven't really been raised enough and um i think a, a lot of people are worried and particularly because now um these are issues that affect everyone and that is unlike other um, issues that we've worked on before that that tend to disproportionately affect some groups and then kind of leave other people almost untouched the emergency powers here directly affect everyone although in different measures as we've discussed Um, and uh, we've certainly had a lot more contact from members of the public people who are just not even just worried but alarmed scared uh, writing to their MPs looking at this legislation going through and and the lockdown restrictions and and, and wondering what is the role of, of, of Parliament in this? It seems to be very executive heavy, uh, ministerial yeah. decree. Do you think that Parliament, our British parliamentary democracy, is surviving this emergency situation well, or do you think things could have been done
1: differently? Well, I think that it's probably a little too early to tell, um, but we are dealing with. The challenge that comes from um, an executive-heavy system, anyway, right? So that you know, w- we know that you know, parliamentary, you know, the, the fairy tale of, of parliamentary sovereignty is is often executive domination in reality. There have been some moments of pushback, um, often with the help of the courts, as in relation to the. Illegal prorogation of Parliament, which now seems like a decade ago, but believe it or not, was only last autumn, which is extraordinary, wasn't it? Do you remember, do you remember last year where everybody was a sort of um, everybody was a sort of um, barrack room constitutional lawyer, and this year everyone's an armchair epidemiologist. But 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 yeah, that's the that's the sort of timescale that we, they were working under. So they've been for many that many years. Now, we've seen an attempt at executive domination of parliament and there's a real question about, about whether the constitution is really robust enough in the face of that. But on top of that, we, we now have an 80 seat majority for the government, which will only you know, um, exaggerate that challenge. On top of that, we've got the, you know, the physical constraints caused by the global pandemic such as it not being safe for um, the house of commons and the house of lords to operate in their traditional way Uh, and i'm not convinced that they're currently achieving the same degree of challenge and checks and balances via the virtual system that's not to say that it, 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 it might not be possible to um, to to develop into something more robust, but that creates a a, a further challenge still. Um, and and then of course here's the problem. I you mean, know, in during the war on terror, I have no doubt that many of the measures that were adopted weren't just sort of unnecessary or disproportionate; they were positively counterproductive. I have no doubt in my mind that things like internment um, and you know. Um, and, and the greater use of, of, of sweeping stop and search without suspicion powers and summary extradition and you know snoopers charters and whatever i have no doubt that they, they probably recruited more terrorists than they prevented but i'm not able to say the same about the current situation where Though the legislation contains some really chilling powers, like nothing we've seen, probably worse than in World War II in terms of the powers, what I'm not able to do is to point to a single one of them and say that that particular power may not be necessary in a particular part of the country a, during the spread of this pandemic. So that's a great challenge still. And then we've got the problem of the asymmetry, yes, being partly in the legislation itself, but it's being exaggerated by the economic and health circumstances of people. So, you know, the war on terror as a metaphor, I never accepted by the way, because I thought it was so dangerous because terrorism, awful though it is, is, is political violence and it's been a part of the human experience forever. Yeah. But and so I was always saying "Oh, what we're going to do, just wait for some politician to tell us that one more push and the war on terror is over. That will be forever. And in the meantime, we just sign away our rights and freedoms. But this is different because with the global pandemic, it is not a metaphor. It is very real. Just look at the death count. And but on the upside, Silky, we will be able to see. The progress in terms of the the deaths going down, and hopefully when we get proper tracking and tracing, we'll be able to really see with our own eyes the infection rate going down. At some point, we will see the greater rollout of all of that, but we will also see a vaccine. So it doesn't have that necessarily the same grave danger of a metaphorical war on terror that just goes on forever. Plus, as you say yourself. Um, the measures though they're disproportionate in impact are having some impact on everyone and what I'm concerned about now as we head out of lockdown is this attempt yet again by some people to discriminate and differentiate in the sacrifices um, that people will make so some super wealthy people are very very keen to get out of lockdown the sooner the better Um, but, but but what they're really doing is sending um, is sending more ordinary working people potentially into unsafe conditions at, at no cost to themselves if anything to improve their um their stocks and shares the war metaphor uh is so interesting and and in the, in
0: the rhetoric around the current pandemic it has been used um you know, there's been a lot of talk about fighting the, the, the virus or winning a war against it, um, which I think for, for, for many reasons is is misplaced. But I do wonder, and I might just challenge this this a bit, mm. but it, it, there is a risk of longevity here, isn't there? I mean, there, we know still relatively little about the novel coronavirus, but it seems quite likely... Um, that it will mutate that there will be other strains it won't go away it will be a a, a constant risk and maybe even it will instill ways that we as a society uh, manage um, whether it's serious flu outbreaks or or other kind of um, uh, health challenges like this do you do do you really think there's a, a a world in which we can have this amount of change that we've had over the past uh two months say the emergency laws and massive social shifts and that we can would you confidently say that you think those powers in their entirety will be revoked kind of when this is done whenever that is and that we will go back to um a kind of relationship between the citizen and the state that we had before
1: i um i think it's it's definitely um, possible, but it but it will take um, it will take it will take a lot more than politicians' promises, or or our good or our goodwill and and aspiration. Apart from anything else, um, the way out of lockdown and the way out of these chilling measures is very directly, in part, about huge investment. In healthcare and social infrastructure. So, if you look at if you look at the jurisdictions elsewhere in the world that have been most successful and um, at fighting um, um, the virus or at keeping deaths down, um, and, and then potentially ways out of lockdown, you're looking at the, um, the health systems that invested and that, um, that invested in particular in things like testing and contact tracing and then isolation. Um, and, and if we get into the, if we massively reinvest in, in healthcare, in PPE, in social care, um, in um, nutrition, in public education and public health education, you can take your foot off the authoritarian pedal. Um, And that is definitely the way that I would want to go as a a healthier um, um, choice for for people's health, but also for, um, for our rights and freedoms.
0: It always seems that there's a foot hovering over the authoritarian pedal. And in times like this, it's very easy just to put the foot down and go full throttle. And uh, alongside those measures that you just mentioned that will help us uh, reclaim a kind of sense of of normal and ensure that this doesn't become a new normal and that people are safe and their lives are protected. Some of what has been asked of people is that we make trade-offs quite directly with our rights um, and in particular privacy has been one of those rights. So we know for example that um, government has been asking um, mobile phone networks to share location data on a mass scale or, or some kind of tracking data on a mass scale but we don't know what we don't know at what scale we have very few answers to those questions. We've got big tech companies <clears throat> who are uh, predictably lobbying now uh, and working their way into the NHS, Palantir, for example, um, Amazon, Microsoft, all in the NHS, and then the contact tracing yeah. app that's being d- done in a, in a centralised way. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the things that we learned from the post 9-11 environment is that these emergency measures, um, particularly where privacy is, is concerned, mm-hmm. tend to endure and they tend to stay and even expand yeah um and as you mentioned earlier the snoopers charter is a really good example of that that creates a new normal how much do you think uh, i'm interested to know how much um you know you personally having worked so much on those privacy issues how much this concerns you and also how much it concerns your colleagues how much appetite you sense that there might be in parliament to be looking Mm -hmm. at these issues seriously so that we don't become a country that's constantly under drone surveillance uh with you know censored apps uh immunity wristbands and all all this kind of dystopian stuff that seems very much on the horizon if not the doorstep
1: i think you're really right to single um this aspect out in particular for being the um for being the aspect that, for being one of the aspects of the of the um, of the crisis that could have, without extreme vigilance, very long-term consequences. Just as with the war on, just as the war on terror nearly became, nearly became the justification for compulsory ID cards, which we, we saw off, but but actually became the justification for all kinds of of, of surveillance. Um, in any event and you know i spent years fighting id cards and here i am talking to you um with you know various products and you know goodness no you're you're always very good at this stuff silky and i'm less technically aware you know you know how much do i really know about the security of 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 these communications and you're quite right of that there is um there is a trade-off with privacy, but there always has been, you know, because we're individual creatures and social creatures, you know, things like privacy in particular have always been complex, um, but but no less precious for that. In fact, you have to be more vigilant, not less vigilant with a so-called qualified or balanced right, almost than you have to be with an absolute right, like the right not to be tortured. And so what we need is more transparency from government about what they're actually up to and what their trade-offs are with big tech firms who aren't necessarily um, getting on board for the good of humanity or, you know, the the good of of fighting the virus. They, you know, they are after people's location data and other intimate data for um, for the reasons of profit not necessarily reasons of public good. Because um, if you think about it, you know, you know these. it's like these onla- online retailers, you know, they are no doubt providing, um, you know, a very useful service to a lot of people right now, but they're not, you know, they're not necessarily treating their employees that well in the warehouses. And the same is true in relation to all the big tech that want to get on board and have wanted people's health data for a very long time. So what we need is transparency about, the design and the processes and the deals and the monetization. We need to have a proper public debate about what the checks and balances should be. And um, you know, we, we want to see necessity, proportionality, and this stuff has to be in accordance with law. I want to know where the primary legislation is going to be that um, that authorizes. Um, the taking, holding and processing of this data and I think that's a perfectly legitimate um, demand and it will only boost public confidence if the public are involved in that that debate and that's what should have happened about all sorts of intrusions in the past because we do accept, don't we, we all accept that we give up a bit of privacy for the purposes of Um, fighting crime, of um, the the enforcement of tax collection etc etc. You cannot collect people's taxes if they aren't forced to tell you what money they have. Um, You cannot investigate crime without intruding to some extent on people's privacy and the same is true I have no doubt about fighting a pandemic. But we want to see. We want to see that we want to see the checks and balances. We want to see the necessity and the proportionality of all of this. We want to see that people aren't being discriminated against, um, and we want it all to be out in the open and subject to, to to law and laws that we debate and make.
0: Yeah, it seems like unfortunately because we're already so far down the road where. Um, where, where surveillance is concerned, that uh, that's come back to bite us. I think because there hasn't been transparency and uh, um, scrutiny, sometimes not even legal frameworks. I mean, um, yeah. ANPR, for example, um, yeah. a massive, massive, massive system of road surveillance, um, which we saw police turning With no legislation.
1: It, it, yeah. just it just developed. Yeah. It Do you know what's really interesting, though, Silky? Some people who are now making these sorts of noises... A, a sort of rather unusual suspect. I, I don't know if you read a piece by um, by Jonathan Evans, the former the former director of MI5, in I think the Telegraph a few weeks ago. He was actually saying something along these lines, or not that far away from them, that if you want to take people with you in relation to uh, some of the surveillance that you might need, or some of the data collection. And processing that you might need to, to fight the virus. Um, you need to learn the lessons of the war on terror and do more of this policy making in public. And then people can, you know, and then and that is the way to make the trade-off, because otherwise it's always, whether it's with whether it's with our physical health or whether it's with our privacy, it's the danger is in some people taking the risks. And making the decisions and other people paying the price and that's true whether it is your health protection which is really important or whether it is your privacy which is also important and it's a complete false choice i've always believed this to say to people you have to choose between your life and your privacy or you have to choose between your economic protection and your health protection this is nonsense if somebody was in your home you wouldn't ask them to choose between um, sharing the meal or being allowed to speak at the table. You just wouldn't separate um, their dignity in that way. And I think that's the kind of thinking we need when we're looking at society as a whole.
0: I agree, and there needs to be much, uh, much better. Uh, There needs to be, or in some instances, any legal frameworks for for some of this stuff and and certainly much better oversight. I think Jonathan Evans has been a really interesting- Yeah, so go ahead. Well, I think Jonathan Evans has been a really interesting voice in this and uh, certainly in in calling for more, um, for the the public to be more engaged and have Mm. reason to put more trust in rapid technological development. His report on AI and algorithmic decision-making, was very good. But I wonder if sometimes um, we almost can't see the wood for the trees. I mean there's the, the legal frameworks are one thing, but what we often are not having a public debate about is do we want this stuff in the first place? Hmm. How much do we want this? And then you know even, yeah. even it kind of dawned on me in recent days, especially now that we're all isolated from one another, that because we are so far down the surveillance road, everything we do currently leaves a data trail that is either exploited for commercial gain or, or in most instances, surveilled and goes into government databases. That includes this call, every communication we have yeah. uh, on our phones, every email, every purchase yeah. we make on Amazon or wherever else, everything we
1: watch, uh, all the... Uh, I know, I, I, I so agree bookings. with you. And I know, I, I, I so agree with you. I rail against it every time I see that because I have made... You know, I'm such a tin hatter in some respects. You know, I'm I'm not on social media, for example. I'm not on Twitter. You won't find me on Facebook, Twitter, etc., etc. But I have made online purchases, and I have bought, you know, films, you know, to watch at home. And the moment you do that, they're sending me they're sending me things that I might like to to watch, and I might like to buy, and that's and and which you know telegraphs to me that they are. They are monitoring my, um, you know, my habits for for their own corporate purposes. But it, it it is nonetheless chilling to me. And, you know, to some extent, this is me, the civil liberties campaigner who fought this stuff um, when it was the government doing it. But when it's big business doing it, I'm, I'm sort of falling in. I'm just falling into to line because the stuff is so convenient and this stuff is so cool. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we have
0: little choice at the moment because of the, the situation we're in. I'm also not suggesting, by the way, that we all go and retreat to the, the, the words. No, and I know you're not. And I have, that would and be I'm, quite nice. Um, yeah. But I'm just I'm just thinking about it would be nice the
1: if there were alternatives. It would be nice yeah. if there were alternatives, you know. It, and maybe this will come. It would be nice if there were entrepreneurs and people who, who, who said, um, here's, here's a streaming service. Here's here's a here's a here's an online retail service that does not hold the da- the data. Now the trade-off will be that you won't be able to buy the same basket of shopping next week, and I'm not going to send you little nudges about books that you will also like um, or films that you will also like. But what you will know, um, if this is what you care about, is that you know your information, your habits. Are, are private, you know, mm. and nobody would want to. But if you think about it, when you walk into a physical bookshop or library or cinema, how would you feel if there was somebody sort of just filming you and recording, you know, which bookshelf you browsed at, which bookshelf you actually took from? Which I mean, you just would, you would find it creepy. You would find it absolutely creepy, and yet we all let this happen um, by this method. Mm, myself incl- yeah. myself included well don't and you can all. tick every box <laughs> you can you can tick every bo- you know subject to your own technical ability and by the way that's another way in which we're not equal um we're not equal in our access to to broadband for example let alone in our affinity um with the you know with understanding the technology so that's a problem um that that needs addressing in terms of resource and, and education and, and so on but even with you know, quite a lot of access and um, and ability. We're making these trade-offs, and we're making them without a genuine choice. Sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I think my 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 major concern
0: is that um, it's really about mission creep and about how, mm-hmm. in the wake of crises like this. Um, we yeah. yes obviously corporate surveillance has, has evolved but we have massive lurches forward in government surveillance um and that often isn't in accordance with the
1: law but uh, and there's there is also also a relationship um, there's uh, also you know the public private thing isn't even divided anymore because you've mm-hmm. got you've got government and corporates working together you know you've got massive private prisons and and You've got, you know, the government, particularly in the in, in, in this crisis, um, you know, having to go to, to you know, to, to big business for help with, with, with everything from pharmaceuticals to to surveillance. So it's not even as simple as saying public good, private bad, all the other way around, depending on your politics. Um, right. It's it, it's really about power. Um, it's, it's about powerful entities of whatever kind. and I'm not saying that they're all wicked because they're doing things that we want them to do on the one hand, but there's insuff- insufficient transparency, there's insufficient accountability um, and insufficient public engagement in, 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 in the decisions. And when you try to ask questions, and this is why it's important, I think, that, that organisations like yours are doing what you're doing um, because people sometimes feel that they can't. Um, you know, situations like this, a bit like the war on terror, to ask questions is to be unpatriotic, or even treacherous. Now, if you look at the debate about schools going back on the first of, of June, and by the way, this can be whether you're advocating um, advocating freedom or advocating protection, and of course, the, the two the two are interlinked. So, you could be somebody who's arguing for, to lift the lockdown or you could be somebody who's arguing um, for more caution before the lockdown is lifted. But you speak out of turn, you ask some difficult questions, and suddenly you're not a patriot, you're not doing your duty, um, you want people to die. All of that rhetoric that we've seen in in previous emergencies. And I think that that is is really um, problematic. And to some extent, I think the discourse is even more toxic now than it was after 9-11 because of because of the rise of a certain, a certain style and tone on social media in particular, and because of the Brexit, you know, um, you know, the, the Brexit debate that's so polarized and, and toxified politics to some extent. So you see it with this debate about whether schools um, whether some primary um, school children should be going back on the first of June. Um, to even ask questions about the scientific data or about how it's going to work is to be, I don't know, a lazy teacher or, a, or, or not a patriot, etc, um, etc. Et so I think that's, you know, that is concerning. and What we must all do, I think, is at least fight for the right to question and the right for a slightly more civil debate so that dissent is not disloyalty particularly in time of crisis.
0: Uh, I wanted to talk about the impact that the emergency powers have had on the, I suppose the integrity of the rule of law. Um, it's been quite concerning to see the the number of um, unlawful prosecutions that there have been um, there have been 44 under the Coronavirus Act already, um, including some people actually being held in custody, um, and um, yes. so so every single Coronavirus Act prosecution that's been reviewed by the CPS so far has been found to be unlawful. And I think there there have been a, about a dozen under the um, lockdown regulations. Um, but there have been thousands and thousands of fines issued and um, I'm really worried that a lot of those might be misplaced or that people are paying them because there's not really an effective means by which to challenge them other than risking prosecution. Um,
1: is this something you're concerned about? I think, I think it is right to, you know, to be concerned um, about all of this confusion and confusion when it leads to unlawful prosecution there's no doubt about that Um, and I, I, I don't believe that most of it is malign I mean you know there's bound to be you know in any system of law there's bound to be abuse but a lot of inconsistency and even illegality will come from just the confusion of emergency legislation of a criminal nature um, and uh, and law enforcement being just behind just behind and not getting sufficient clarity from government and from um, those at the head of law enforcement there's no doubt about that and I do think it needs to be looked at and I think there needs to be um, a, a culture in government and at the top of you know prosecution and and police, um, agencies of saying okay we weren't perhaps adequately prepared for this global pandemic we're playing catch-up but what we are going to do is have a hard look at how this happens um, to, to ensure that the, you know that we're better equipped in the future and if necessary that means apologizing to people if necessary that means reviewing guidance if necessary that means reviewing the actual law but we have to take the public with us and the public you know, have given actually a lot of support um, to the authorities in this pandemic. And I think they've done it for good reason, generally speaking. They've done it because this wasn't a metaphysical threat. This is a very real threat. It's an invisible enemy, but it is a real one, you know. And to some extent, I think the war metaphor is better here than it was in the war on terror, even though this isn't called the war on coronavirus. Some people might call it that. And the reason, and it's really interesting, because people said the the British public won't wear this. It it is said in the media in some places that one of the reasons why the government was perhaps a little later to lockdown than it might have been was that it feared that the British public wouldn't wear it or wouldn't wear it for a lengthy period. And I think that's probably proven um, to be untrue or not to be borne out by the evidence, which is that people have made enormous sacrifices, but I think, in return, you know, these same uh, people are entitled to some hands going up and to some lessons being learned, and being learned openly and transparently, so that, if necessary, apologies can be made, compensation given, and um, guidance, practice, and even the law, if necessary, amended. And there's no shame in that, but of course, too often the culture is to is to hunker down. We never made a mistake, and we never got it wrong. And um, and I think that that just whole culture is um, is 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 problematic in itself do you think just just
0: going a little bit more into the the lockdown itself and this, this is yeah. a difficult area and it's fraught with controversy yeah. and uh, all the rest of it so I, I put this kind of <laughs> that prelude on it sure, but sure. do you think there's a a risk that some of the, restri- the, the the length or the extent of the restrictions that are in place are somewhat kind of patching over pre-existing failures that the the NHS, the the real purpose for the the lockdown initially was to protect the NHS specifically to make sure that it was going to be able to deal with the the number of people suffering. But does that mean that we are kind of surrendering liberty to protect the NHS, um, the the ability of the NHS, which has been systematically underfunded, I think it's just fair and, and sort of objective to say for years, um and then other failures for example to source ppe um the kind of
1: practical failures around handling the crisis i think to some extent that's correct i think you know and i don't mean to be a controversialist i'm not even trying to play a blame game i just think um that calmly and dispassionately there is no doubt that some elements of lockdown um, were either required or required to a greater extent because of our lack of preparedness in terms of things, in particular, like um, testing, tracing, and isolation, um, and then to uh, and and then you know things like PPE and so on. If we'd, if for exa- you know, do you remember reading? I don't know at some point in February, which now seems like a decade ago. About some people who'd come back from their ski trips and their business trips, and you know, were they prepared to sign a contract before they got on the plane and and sit voluntarily in quarantine in the Wirral? You know, it is possible that if, if, as soon as we, um, I mean, this is counterfactualism, right? And there's no point in it to some extent, except that to learn lessons for the future, we ought to try and learn from it. Uh, There's no doubt in my mind that um, with greater preparedness, greater investment in the NHS, greater stocks of PPE, but in particular, if we'd stuck with testing, contact tracing and isolation, and I know that there are civil liberties aspects to contact tracing, for example, but I think we can agree that it would be possible to devise a system of contact tracing that protected people's privacy as well as protected their lives. If if we'd stuck with, um, you know, checking people when they came into the country um, and with an element of community-based testing and tracing and isolation, we might not have needed, but might not have needed the scale or... um, or viciousness of the of the lockdown. I mean, I may be wrong about that, but but you but 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 if you look at it from the other end of the lockdown, a lot of people seem to be saying that it would be easier to uh, to take the foot off the pedal and come out of lockdown with greater confidence if we had the the testing. The contact tracing and the isolation in place, because then you wouldn't have to have the global lockdown, the the national uh, or massive lockdown. You'd actually be able to to tell who needed to isolate and who could be back out at work. And if that's true on the way out, it seems to me in logic that it might have been true. Um, it might have been true on the way in as well. Now, we don't have a full picture because there isn't transparency. We get certain things mooted in Sunday newspapers, certain leaks and briefs and who knows, and no doubt a blame game is already beginning in Whitehall um, that won't necessarily make transparency um, any easier. But uh, I do think there's something there's something in that. That doesn't mean that we wouldn't have had to make sacrifices um, because this is a very real um, virus. You know, that people had to make sacrifices in relation to HIV AIDS, you know, in relation to their intimate lives, in relation to their, you know, you know, their drug use and, and other you know, um, behaviours. Um, and that came with a great deal of stigma um, and, and so on that this pandemic doesn't need to, to come with, though some are already trying to get xenophobic about it which is, I think, a mistake in, in more than one country, I should add. Um, but But yes, sometimes there is no doubt, and this was true with terrorism as well, sometimes you pay in civil liberties for a lack of economic and other practical investment. Mm.
0: Yeah, without doubt. There were, there were different ways of going about this and dealing with it. And we've seen lots of different approaches, um, even across Europe. Of course, Sweden is the outlier and something that I've uh, certainly experienced and, and heard a lot from people who are concerned about the, the, the current situation that we're in, um, in terms of the lockdown and, and loss of liberty, um, is that there was no debate about, about that, that it seems that it was taken as a given that, the, that Britain's way of dealing with this and the way that UK would deal with this is by, by going into a full lockdown and kind of not really questioning then oh, are we paying the price for a failure to fund the NHS or to stop PPE and, and all the rest mm-hmm. of it.
1: Um, But the irony is I think there was a debate It just was it was happening behind closed doors and we weren't included in it. That's the problem. Of course there was a a debate. I mean, to some observers and journalists, it looks as if there wasn't just a debate, there was a U-turn. Some people are suggesting that at some point in early March, there was a U-turn or handbrake turn, or I don't drive, but some kind of dramatic turn. And that Look, I don't know the answer to this because I'm not privy to what goes on between the Prime Minister and his closest advisers. But some commentators um, are suggesting on the basis of leaks and, and, and briefing and so on, that there was a dramatic change of strategy from, if you like, a more Swedish approach to the lockdown approach. But I think there's also this issue about preparedness um years of you know of austerity and and the impact of that on health care and social care and and preparedness and resilience. Um, and in particular this this thing about testing and tracing and isolation. Because if you're saying that no we're going to contain we're going to contain and we're going to be able to to carry on life generally as normal because we can we can spot the virus and we can pinpoint who has it and we can, we can quarantine them um, and take care of them. And, and and that way you have to test and you have to trace and you have to isolate. And that, you know, just seems logical to me, but at some point, not only did we move from, from what some people were talking, you know, when people took, do you remember when people were talking about herd immunity Yeah, um, and which was always a little bit chilling um, to some, because you know using animal metaphors is always a little bit uncomfortable. But you know some people were banging on about that. Other people were saying, well, that's just awful. You're going to sacrifice the elderly and the and the vulnerable and so on and so forth on the altar of your of your economic um, attitude and and status quo. Then they said, no, no, no. Herd immunity is not a strategy. It's just something that's going to happen. Um, that wasn't that was never our strategy. but all of, but we do know that the lockdown came quite suddenly. it came earlier than anybody was expecting. It came suddenly and the testing stopped. Yeah, but community based testing stopped and then we were told well actually there's a capacity problem and that has come from you know ministers have admitted that they couldn't do as much testing as they would have liked to because they didn't have the capacity. Mm. And that is the evidence that you need, that to some extent we have been making trade-offs between um, money and human rights.
0: Yeah, and it's this, I guess, that brings me back round to the, the question about the role for parliament in all of this. The fact that such fundamental questions about um, the lives and liberties of everyone in this country were happening with unelected advisers behind closed doors not with a sovereign parliament who have been you know kind of allowed a look you know allowed a two-hour debate about the the lockdown two months after it happened allowed to make a statement as 340 pages of the coronavirus act went through which completely renegotiates our our civil liberties um, and confers extraordinary powers to ministers and authorities you know it's so it's wonderful that you're in parliament um, as as a champion for civil liberties and, and human rights i wonder in which seat did you feel and, and I'm sorry if this is a slightly painful question. Yeah, um, yeah. I have to ask it a, a, an honest question. In which seat do you feel that you've had more influence? Is it as um, a in in your campaigning capacity um, or now in Parliament?
1: Well, that pfft. that's um. That's, it's not painful. It's just difficult. It's not pain. You know, um, it's painful because, for me to ask it. I'm sorry. No, 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 no no, 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 not at all. No, no, it's not painful at all because influence is very difficult. Influence, influence is difficult to um, to measure. Um, I think that because it's influence, not power. <laughs> you know, power to some extent is sort of very tangible, isn't it? You know, you, you know when you're the prime minister, and you know that that is power, as opposed to you know, maybe being the leader of the opposition, for example, let alone being being somebody else. But I think that influence is a, is a, is a much, much more sort of mercurial thing because sometimes you don't even, even, particularly as a campaigner, you don't necessarily even know the strength of your influence and the ripples that that, that dissipate and then cause um, other people that perhaps you haven't even met to be motivated to, you know, um to to act in a certain way but I but what I can say is that um, I don't think that Parliament has been particularly muscular during this crisis partly because of the arithmetic um, and the timing you you know it it followed um, quickly after a a general election I mean I I think that um, I think that You know, the the Southeast Asian countries were were first sort of communicating with the World Health Organization on something like New Year's Eve. Mm. We'd had, you know, in our political life, we'd had this tumultuous general election, government with massive majority, um, demoralized opposition, um, you know, just tumult. And 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 therefore and all of those things are just a weakening of of checks and balances on a triumphant executive. And I'm not making a party political point. It's just whoever's in you know whoever's in the executive that would be the case with that kind of that kind of story. Um, and then um, we don't have sufficient transparency. And I don't think that anybody properly gripped. The gravity of the situation until it was almost too late to, to give the kind of scrutiny that you would have wanted to both the legislation and the nature of the lockdown. And I think that both were necessary, but the things that could have made them less necessary or made the extremities less necessary um, needed to be to, to have been looked at probably months, if not years before. In terms of both investment and uh, and and planning, now this is all counterfactual, and it's not said on my part, and I don't think it's asked on your part, in order to bash the government or or you know write an alternative sort of fiction. It's it it's about trying to trying to learn not just for the future and other other crises, but but for the further handling of this one. Because, for example, what is the plan for the autumn and the winter? What if there's a new What if there's a new spike um, after a certain easing of the lockdown measures? What if um, What if the autumn or the winter brings a new wave? What if it takes longer than we would like and hope to get a vaccine? You know, all of these dilemmas are going to continue and exacerbate. And what I would say is is that as human rights folk we don't have magic solutions but what we have is a sort of a sort of compass that helps with the navigation a little bit and its principles like necessity and proportionality and non-discrimination and legality transparency these are the sorts of things that i think we're right to um, to ask for but i would say ultimately it's that even-handedness that is so important we cannot have some people making all the decisions behind closed doors, or um, because they have the command of the airwaves or they have the newspaper columns and other people sort of paying, paying the price. And that's paying the price both with their livelihoods and their jobs, um, but also paying the, um, the price with their mental health when they're isolated in lockdown or, or actually with their lives when they're frontline NHS staff, care staff, transport workers and and all of those people because they have human rights. They have human rights too and they have they have literally paid the ultimate price. As I say, at the moment, we're into 30 something thousand. And that is not a metaphysical war rate. That is nearly half the total um, UK civilians that that were lost in World War Two.
0: Yeah, these are truly extraordinary times and I do fear this is just the beginning and we may very well see a second wave um, but certainly what we will have to do is is uh, enter this kind of new world, uh, the post-pandemic world where um, so much is being re- renegotiated, our expectations of civil liberties, various kind of social norms, we've got these emergency powers to deal with and of course the, the health crisis which will which will change um, as time goes on. But I'm so glad um, that you're that you that you continue to advocate for human rights and civil liberties in Parliament. I'm
1: really glad that, that that you're there and Big Brother Watch is there and you know that we're all even in this dystopian moment. We're able to to come together even by this sort of space oddity type <laughs> type technology. <laughs> yeah um me too
0: um and uh, um yeah i really want to say thank you on 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 behalf of so on behalf of so many people um just also for everything that you that you've done to advocate for for human rights for so long and i I've, I've really learned a lot speaking to you just now even think you know drawing those comparisons with the um, the battle for liberty that you for for so many years in those post nine eleven years and in the most difficult circumstances, you've certainly inspired lots of people, me included, to try to be fearless in the work that we do, um, and to continue doing it in difficult circumstances. So you're doing um,
1: great, and you know you're, you know the feelings mutual. And thanks for everything that you're all doing.
0: Oh, thank you, Shami. and I want I wanted to say as well. Um, You know you i brought up the coronavirus act several times and you um humbly didn't acknowledge um how much work you did on that and scrutinizing it and um uh pushing government to put the six-month review in which you know as we discussed in in the circumstances was was quite something because it was a very limited time frame um and you know we'll see in six
1: months now thank thanks to um, that but it was a small was- thing. It was a small thing, but actually, under the circumstances, it was small. But maybe something, you know? Yeah, um, exactly. Never enough. The problem with all of this, and you'll know this from your own work, is that it's never enough, and it's never over. But um, but we we keep we keep doing what we're doing, and um, it's really hard. But it's but it's worth it, and um, and both the point of it and the joy of it. Is the same thing, and that is other people. You know that they, they present us as these sort of, as these sort of selfish, rights obsessed libertarians. You know, but we're not. We're actually all about other people because, yeah, that's what that's what it's all about. It's it, it's um it's not selfishness. It's, it's what it is to be human, and um and to and to have each other, as social creatures, but also to have you know our our, our dignity and our freedom. Absolutely.
0: Oh, I couldn't have put it better. Thank you so much, Shami. Thanks for listening to the Big Brother Watch podcast. Our work completely relies on the generosity of people like you who care about civil liberties. You can help make our work stronger by supporting us at bigbrotherwatch.org.uk forward slash donate.